The following message was given at Hope Church of Knoxville. For more information about Hope Church, please visit our website at hopeknox.com. The Pope's Door. And uh, just to give a little background about uh, uh, Catherine or Katie Von Bure, she, uh, there's some very interesting things and some things I think will be helpful for us to look at with her life that should be challenging for us. Even if male or female, these things should be convicting for us. So during the Reformation period, there was this idea uh, within the Roman Catholic Church that... Uh, the only reason you would get married is if you couldn't control yourself. So the concept was is that all the people who were getting married, they couldn't control uh, their desires, therefore they had to get married. So if you could control your desires, what you would do is become a nun or a monk. And there was this concept that if you did otherwise, that you were somehow or another unclean or not as spiritual as the monks and the nuns. So there was this whole... Uh, this whole encouragement, this whole pursuit to flee from marriage. It almost is as if marriage was for the weak. So Martin Luther, this is one of the things that he wrote against the Roman Catholic Church. He was a a German monk who uh, rebelled against the Roman Catholic Church and really sparked an uproar. And the reason our church exists today and the majority of churches you see in America exist today are because of Martin Luther. It's what divided the Protestant Church from the Roman Catholic Church. Well, these nuns and these monks immediately, or shortly after knelling his 95 uh, theses, he wrote a book called Against Monastic Vows. And what this was, was he was talking about how marriage is not something that is sinful, it's not something that is for the weak, it is something that is good. It's something that is holy. Something that should be encouraged. So he wrote this book, Against Monastic Vows, and he abandoned his vows to be a monk, And then all of a sudden, this entire um, monastery full of nuns decided they wanted to abandon their their vows as well. And they wanted to get married. So what happened? Katie and Martin Luther got together and they made this plan to help get these nuns out of this monastery. So they had this, this fish barrel that was supposed to hold fish. And he talked all of these women into getting into this fish barrel. They closed it off, and then they sent it along its way, and they escaped this monastery hiding in a fish barrel. Well, as soon as they arrived in in Munich, all of the women slowly started getting married. Well, there was one left. It was Katie von Bure. And Luther tried to encourage one of his friends to marry her. And his friend got engaged to her, but shortly thereafter broke off the engagement. After breaking off the engagement, one of his friends says this. They, they tried to encourage, or she tried to encourage Luther to marry her. She says, uh, I want, she basically proposed to him. She says, I want to marry you. Since no one else will marry me, I want to marry you. And then he told his friends, the Lord will never force marriage upon me. And he seemed pretty adamant against marrying Katie von Bure. Well, the day of their wedding, all his friends started crying, weeping, sad because he married her. Not because it was at a wedding and people cry at weddings, but no, they were depressed that he was marrying Katie von Bure. And then they asked Luther on their wedding day, why did you marry Katie? Why did you marry her? His response was, to spite the devil. He was always very humorous 
And it seems as if he was not at first attracted to Katie, even though he married her, and his reason for marriage was to spite the devil. Later on in life, their marriage naturally grew, and they became the dearest of friends, and they loved each other dearly. Luther actually said this once about her later in life, because it seemed for the longest time that he didn't care for his wife that much, but he said this later in life about her. There is no one more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than in a good marriage. He slowly became great friends. He slowly found a great relationship in his wife, Katie. Proverbs 31, oftentimes, whenever we come to this passage, is read in isolation and not really read in the buildup of the book. What does this mean? What's the the foundation of this? And why is it significant for us to read? And what does it have to do with our marriages, with our lives? What if we're single? What does this have to do with us? What if we're, we're young and have no pursuits of marriage at this moment? What does this mean to us? Why is this significant for us? The buildup of this in, in the book of Proverbs is actually located in a little, knowing a little church history is kind of interesting. Proverbs in, in the Hebrew Old Testament, so when Jesus was around, Proverbs would have been right after or right before the book of Ruth. So it's as if Proverbs ended with a Proverbs 31 woman describing what does this godly, what does this virtuous, uh, virtuous woman look like? And then the very next chapter begins with Ruth 1 describing this godly woman. What does a godly woman look like? Well, look to the book of Ruth. This is we get to see this lived out in life. Proverbs 31 is there to describe it for us. Well, in the Greek Old Testament, shortly thereafter, and actually around the time of Christ as well, uh, Christ actually quotes from the Greek Old Testament several times as well. It's coupled with what's called the wisdom literature. So Proverbs is there for, to give us wisdom and reflection, how to live righteously. So when we look to Proverbs 31 and we look to these passages, there to show us what does it look like if we want to live a godly life? What does it look like? The book is there for instruction to guide us in godliness. Solomon is the writer of the book, and he writes to his son. Chapter 1 talks about it's from Solomon, and then we see down only a couple verses later that it's to his son. He's instructing them, he's guiding him. Hey, how is it that you're called to live a godly life? If I want to invest myself in someone young and raise them up in godliness, how do we do that? And that's what the book of Proverbs is about. It's about a father teaching his son, investing in his son, trying to raise him up in such a way that he will reflect the glory of God. When we come to Proverbs 31, we see that it's reflections from a king named King Lemuel. Now his name is not an Israelite name. We have no history of him in the history of the kings of Israel. So it lets us know that it's very likely not a king from Israel. So it is a Gentile king instructing us on what does a godly woman look like. The very beginning of the chapter, verses 2-9, through warns us about the opposite of what, if you want to say this, that a sinful life looks like. And there's, there's warning against strong drink or injustice or wayward women. There's all of these warnings there of what to flee from. 
It's almost as if the, the book of Proverbs ends with, it gives us a warning of what to flee from, and then it shows us a small glimpse and what it looks like for, for God to restore everything. And we see a small glimpse of what Eden looked like, that we're longing for this day when once again we'll enter into the Garden of Eden and all things will be restored. It ends with verses 10 through 31 showing us what godliness looks like for a woman. And it's also written as poetry. If we all spoke Hebrew, we'd actually see this uh, in the Hebrew. Each verse begins with the very beginning of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. And it goes all the way through the Hebrew alphabet till the end. So verse by verse, each line is another letter in the alphabet. So it's poetry describing this, this godly woman. And the structure of it is this way, and then we'll dive into the text to see the significance. And we're going to look more at Catherine von Buehr's life and how she reflects this and demonstrates to us and challenges us to live in such a way. But 10 through 12 shows us the value of this woman, and 13 through 27 shows us why she should be valued. What are the things that she's doing that are worth praising? And then verse 28 through 31 are the things which she receives praise for. So it starts off with this. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The same verse, or the same phrase, this excellent wife, this quality, this virtuous wife, whatever word you want to use there, it's used very frequently. It says this in Ruth, describing Ruth in verse, or chapter 3, verse 11. Now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Solomon starts off with this rhetorical question. Who can find this great woman? Who can find this excellent wife? She's far more valuable than jewels. Why does he use the, why does he use the illustration of jewels or money? It's this idea in Judaism of a bride price. You would pay the father a bride price in order to, to, to get the wife. And what he is saying to this is, is that this godly woman, this excellent woman, is far more valuable than anything money can buy. There's no amount of money that can, can be worth this godly woman. You cannot pay enough for this. So much so that it's as if Solomon is trying to show us that if money cannot pay for this, if this is something more valuable than jewels, it must be from the Lord. And that's what he's getting at, is that a godly woman is not something that you can, you can create or find enough money and pay for, but it's something that's brought about by the Lord. This passage begins for us with a good reminder. Men, if you're seeking a godly wife, my mentor used to say it this way, you'll never find a Proverbs 31 woman without first being a Proverbs 1-30 through 30 man. It's a good reminder that beauty is not what you see on television. It's not what you see on magazine covers. It's not how our culture defines it. We cannot attain to this. We cannot pay for this. We cannot work hard enough to be this description of beauty. Beauty is bound up in something so much more. Beauty is bound up in the character of God. Beauty can only be made by the Lord. Culture cannot make this. You cannot make yourself this type of beauty. Only the Lord can. 
Let's go down to verse 11. The heart of her husband trusts her, and he will find no lack in gain. Let me go ahead and give a, a preface to this, this quote. I'm going to read a small quote, or it's actually a long quote. Usually I wouldn't read one this long. But um, Bruce Waltke, a famous Old Testament scholar, says this about this verse. And I think it helps us understand what it means. Apart from this verse and Judges 20.36, Scripture condemns trust in anyone or anything apart from God. One can successfully place confidence only in Yahweh. No other entity can have an ultimate object of trust. The present exception elevates the valiant wife, who herself fears the Lord, to the highest level of spiritual and physical competence. The claim implies, now this is what I think is significant, the claim implies that a husband and wife enjoy a robust spiritual relationship. Basically, what Bruce Walk is implying is here is that throughout Scripture, there's all of these commands to trust only the Lord, and that even our hearts are deceptive. We can't trust anyone because they're not trustworthy. Only the Lord is trustworthy. And there's all of these warnings that only the, the only one we can place our trust in, and the only one that we can find rest in to find trust is in the Lord. So it shows us the significance of this passage when the only other place that is mentioned is trusting in a spouse. A godly woman, one that we should look for, is one that we can trust. She has this character of trust. It's as if marriage, in the confines of marriage, there's this small glimpse of a heavenly reality. It's as if sin has been defeated and now once again there is that union of trust that is being built. Marriage, there's no longer this disharmony or shame that is brought about by the fall of sin. But there's hope of restoration in marriage. And that's what Solomon is getting at. That's what he's, he's signifying when he tells us the heart of the husband trusts her and he lacks no gain. Because there's freedom and there's, there's vulnerability that is allowed and harmony that is allowed within marriage. That's the beauty of a godly wife. Verse 12. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. What's this look like? I think he's getting ready to show us in the next couple of verses. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's described as working for clothes for her family. In several other translations, the willing hands, though, is, is translated, another translation is this, as joyful hands, as joyous or hands. She finds delight in serving her family. I don't think the application of this is if you want to be a godly wife or if you want to be a godly woman or if you're a man looking for a godly wife, it's not that you have to be able to make clothes. I don't think that's the significance of it or that you're responsible for going out and buying all your family's clothes. But I know a lot of ladies enjoy doing that, especially my wife. I don't think that's the application of this. I do think the application, though, is this. Do you find joy or delight in serving your family? There is delight in that. It's an aspect of godly character that you're, you're finding joy and delight in serving others. 
to bring back to, to, Kate, to Katie Von Bura an illustration of her. She used to regularly have, Martin Luther would have over a hundred men in their house, sometimes a day for Bible study and teaching. He would bring them into his house and they would invest in time in, in, in training up these leaders in the church. Now, if you imagine when people leave your house and you're responsible for cleaning up after these people, even though you enjoy having people over, now intensify that times 100 people in your house. That's a godly woman. She's cleaning up after 100 people a day. Why does she do it? Not because she enjoys cleaning. She has a heart to serve others. Is that your heart? Do you have a heart to serve those within your household? Are you serving others now? If you're in hopes of being married one day, are you having a heart that is displayed by your service towards others? Are you sacrificing for the good of others? That's what the virtuous, that's what the godly woman looks like. She serves and she's found having joy in that service. Verse 14 she is like the ships of merchant, a merchant, and she brings her food from afar. The woman of, uh, of virtue, she prepares food and materials and things, and she goes to these ships and she sells things for the sake of her family. She wasn't the drive-through Chick-fil-A type of lady, even though I enjoy Chick-fil-A. I'm a Chick-fil-A Plus member, if you guys were wondering. I've got a, a card with my name on it. I'm kind of a big deal. Oh, no, I do love Chick-fil-A. But no, I don't think this is minimizing the task or minimizing the fact that uh, you, you go get drive through or anything of that nature. I don't think that's application of this text as well. But don't let this minimize everything that she's doing here. Everything that she's, she's taking things out to the ships to, in order to get food to bring it home to her families. Don't let this minimize the small task that you have as a wife or as a mother while you're at home and doing these things. Don't let this make the, the incredible difficult tasks of going to the grocery store to get food for your family. I know sometimes that's an incredibly difficult task, especially if you have young little ones. That you're, you're lucky if you survive without kids melting down in the floor while you're at the grocery store. I've, I know those experiences. Don't feel like a failure when you only get half the things you need when you go to the grocery store. This virtuous woman doesn't give us a model of she, you have to do all these things in order to be godly. That's not the purpose of this task. That's not the purpose of this section for us to read or for, for someone to read this and to feel like, hey, there's no way I could ever live up to these righteous standards. So what then is the purpose of this? What is she modeling for us? She's modeling for us that she does this work and she longs to love her family and the Lord by the things that she does for her family. That her love and her affection and the way that she's worshiping the Lord is by serving her family in whatever fashion that may look like. I'm not saying you have to go get groceries. I'm not saying that you have to be responsible for making the food. But what I'm saying is the virtuous woman is loving and sacrificing for her family in such a way She's doing it as worship unto the Lord. Let these qualifications motivate you. Because they also should cause you to feel 
as if there's no way I could live up to these standards. It's there to help you lean on Christ. Because every single person falls short of the glory of God and we need to constantly be leaning on Jesus. We will never live up to these standards. We will always fall short of His righteous standard. It's there so we can see that we need Jesus. We're constantly in that progress, in that state of falling short, realizing we need to look to Christ to find our fulfillment. She's giving up, so she rises while it is yet night, and she provides food for her household and portions of her maidens. Once again, I don't think this is saying you have to have very little sleep, but if you have little ones, I know there's a lot of us who do, so I'm going to bring application to that. There's many states where you don't get, or stages of life where you don't get any sleep with little kids. I don't think that's what it's saying here, but I think the significance of this is she's sacrificing her comforts for the sake of others. Are you doing that? Are you sacrificing for others? Are you giving up your own comforts so that the rest of your family is blessed? This woman displays this for us. It's almost as if the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that the nations are going to be blessed through Abraham, that others are going to be blessed through his seed. This woman's displaying this. Others are being blessed because of her service. The nations and others are being blessed through her. Verse 16, She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands, and she plants a vineyard. Back in Genesis, at the very beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are called to work and keep the land. It's as if they're called to work this garden. And and the goal was one day, they said, work and keep the land, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the whole earth. The goal was that one day the garden would fill the whole earth and God's glory would be filling the entire earth as they work and kept the garden. And then... As soon as we come to Noah, God destroys the earth because of their sin. And what happens? Right after they get off the boat, God tells them to be fruitful and multiply. It's as if they're acting as another Adam. God's recreating the world through Noah. And as soon as he gets off the boat, he builds an altar and worships the Lord. We think, is this the promised seed? And he starts building a vineyard. He's working the land. And the same phrase to work and keep the land is also given to the priests in the temple. Pretty significant as you trace those themes throughout the Old Testament. But what we see here is the woman is doing the same thing Adam and Eve were called to do. The same thing that Noah was called to do. To work and keep the land. She's using her resources to obey the commands of God. She's working and keeping so that her family are blessed. Also, I think this is another good point to bring up an illustration here of of Katie Von Bure. She says this, or it says this about her. She grew her own garden. She raised livestock. She cooked. And I think more famously, she brewed beer. Interesting note there about Katie Von Bure. She brewed beer for Martin Luther. It says this, verse 17. She dresses herself with strength and she makes her arms strong. Her strength is there to help her serve others. 
She perceives that her merchandise is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes her bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine, or fine linen and purple. Yes, see about this, this other's focus. She's helping the poor. She's longing for she's She's putting everyone before herself. She's loving others. She's loving her neighbor. That's her ultimate calling in life. Sometimes loving our neighbor means helping the poor. Sometimes it means taking care of the kids until your husband gets home. She's loving and she's focused on others. Katie also making use of her house and her income. She gave extra, all the extra rooms in her house to, to house people and guests and students. While they were there, she was making food for them and allowing them to stay there. Sometimes up to 30 people live with them at a time. My question to you in light of this, are you using the things God has given you in order to serve those within your church? Are you loving others by using your, your things, your money, your house, whatever it may be? Are you using your things in such a way that reflects the glory of God? If we looked at your paycheck statement, if we looked at those things and we, we broke those down, are they testifying to the fact that you love your church and the people within your church? Are you serving people with your time? If we broke down your time throughout the day, are you using it in such a way that is building up others within the body? That's what we see here is that she's focused, the virtuous woman is focused on building up others in her church, in her household. She's serving the poor. She's loving others. She's using the things that God has given her to serve the community. And we'll see the result of that here in a moment. Here's the result, verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders in the land. Her husband's praised because of all her great deeds in the community. Her name, her righteous deeds, and her heart for others is evident to everyone in town. She makes linen garments and sells them, and she delivers sashes to the merchants. Her strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. Why does it bring up that she laughs at the time to come? What's the significance of this? She's clothed in righteous. Righteousness is her clothing. It's not something physical. It's something spiritual. But what's the significance of the laughing? She looks at the future and she sees all the difficult tasks that she has before. She sees that it's going to be incredibly difficult to accomplish these tasks. And yet, instead of complaining, what does she do? She sees the difficulty and she laughs. It makes me think of a Psalm 2 where all the people are coming against the Lord and His anointed one. And what happens? It says, the Lord looks upon them and laughs. When they're trying to go against God and His, and His appointed plan. And they think that they can thwart God's plan in some way. And God laughs at them. Because God cannot be thwarted. His plans cannot be overturned. 
And this virtuous woman, she trusts in the sovereign hand of God when she sees all the difficult things that she has to do. Rather than getting overwhelmed and stressed, she rests in the solid hand of God because He is in control. And there is comfort in that. There's beauty and rest in that because you know that your task in life may be difficult, but God is in control. You can rest in that. Makes me think of another fun illustration. This is to show Katie Luther's humor in life. Martin Luther used to struggle with depression. Even before the Reformation started, he used to go to a priest regularly and, and confess his sins. And it was so much so that the priest said, Hey, stop coming to me every day. When you have something real to confess, then come. He was overwhelmed. He was stressed. He could not reconcile the fact that a righteous God, how can a righteous God love me in light of my sin? And then while wrestling with Scripture, this is what brought the Reformation about. He realizes that it's not because of the things that he does that he's allowed to stand before God, but it's because Jesus Christ's righteousness is placed upon him. And now when God looks down upon us, he doesn't see Adam the great sinner. He sees the perfect righteousness that is in Christ. So our comfort in life is not that I can do enough to be approved by God, but it's the fact that Jesus Christ, I'm clothed in Christ. He is my righteousness. Luther, though, struggled with that early on. And even after coming to realization that salvation is by faith alone, because of the imputed righteousness of Christ alone, he still struggled with bouts of depression. So one day... He's struggling with depression. He's in the room with his wife, Katie. And Katie leaves the room and she comes back dressed in all black. And Luther responds and asks her, Are you going to a funeral? Katie responds, Since you act like God is dead, I want to join you in your mourning. We see the humor in her lifestyle as well. She was there To help point him back to the fact that God is in control. She recognizes that God is in control. Therefore, there's no reason to be depressed. Because He is in control. And everything in our life is working for our good. And He's working those things for our good. Verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom and with teaching the kindness of her tongue. The fruit of this woman's labor is that she builds others up with her words. The gospel has taken root in her heart and it's changed the way that she loves and treats and speaks to others. She looks well to the ways of her household and she does not eat the bread of idleness. She is not lazy. A famous quote says this, Only one life will soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. She very much has that mindset and that she's focused all her energy on doing things that will glorify the Lord. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and she praises her. Many women have done excellent, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Man, I think this is a, a good reminder and encouragement for us to encourage our wives, to build up our wives. Women work towards these things. Men compliment them, encourage them. 
I mentioned this last week that I had an interview with a, a, an author, uh, Courtney Reisig, who wrote Glory in the Ordinary. So the last two weeks, my quotes have actually come from that. I had a really good, helpful conversation uh, with her about her book. And she said this, I asked her, I was like, how can men encourage their wives in the home? What are some practical ways that they can encourage their wives? And she said this, and I found this helpful. And I think it's something that we should reflect upon as men or as husbands. She says that when a woman is working in the home, one of the difficult tasks is that you don't have performance reviews. It's not as if you have the employee of the month being given out like regular jobs. You don't have a review telling you how you've done or how you, what you need to work on, what you need to improve on. So, she says, oftentimes, the only encouragement or the only feedback on how you're doing as a wife or as a mother comes from your spouse or your kids. She said that your kid, my kids are pagans. Sometimes they tell me I'm doing terrible. So, husbands, in light of that, sometimes the only praise that a spouse and a mother may get is from her husband. She's not getting these reviews. She's not getting the employee of the month. Praise her in the gates. Encourage her. Build her up in the task. Show her, encourage her that she is doing good in her service to your family. Ultimately, the virtuous woman is here to point us to Jesus. We don't want to get by with this and say, hey, I've got ten points of what I could do to be a better wife, mother, or future wife, future mother, or what I can do to look for this this great woman. I don't want us to leave with this this moralism, if you want to think of it that way. I think... There we go. Sorry. I think all of these points, divorced from the gospel, will leave us empty. But what I think it's here for us is ultimately to show us What does the bride of Christ look like? What does it mean to be the virtuous woman? What's it mean for the church to pursue holiness? The reason we pursue these tasks is because of the joy set before us. The reason we go out and serve our communities and love those within the church is because Christ has redeemed us. He has bought us with His blood so that we can be praised. Now the ultimate end of the story is just like the man in this story. Because of all the virtuous woman's hard work, he is praised. Just like the church as we're going out and serving those in the community and serving those here, we are to go out and serve in hopes of bringing the Father glory. In hopes of bringing worship to Christ. Are we doing that? Are we serving in such a way that it brings Him glory? Ultimately, this passage is here to point us to Jesus. Are you doing that today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this this passage, this challenging passage. May it cause us to look and reflect upon Your Son and what He has done for us at the cross. May we strive to be holy, virtuous, excellent men and women who long to bring You glory who long to make much of Your Son. May we strive for godliness in that fashion. We thank You for Christ. We thank You for forgiveness. May this motivate us to spread a passion for Your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.